We're in a series called Games People Play. This is summertime. Kids at least get to play some. And uh, we've had Twister. We've had chess. We've had Battleship last week with Pastor Jeff. We had Hide and Seek. And this week, I want to tell you about my game. My game comes from, for me, from 1949. Now, some, some of you kids are saying, like, is that like near the Civil War? Was that when that was? <laughs> Not quite that far back, but one month after the end of World War II, September of 1945, our family, my dad, my mom, my elder sister, and I, went to India by boat, by ship. Uh, my parents were missionaries. So 1949, it had been a challenging four years. And part of the challenge was physical illness. My mom had had some serious difficulties. My sister had just been diagnosed in 1949 with rheumatic fever. I had had rickets and malaria and a few other things. So the decision was made that the three of us, my mom, my sis, and I, would come home a year early. My dad would stay a year. And so we went from South India, where we were just across the channel, to what is now Sri Lanka. It was called Ceylon at the time, Colombo Ceylon. And we got on board a ship. Now this is the three of us. This is a picture of my mom, my sister, and me. I think I'm cute, I'm just saying. <laughs> Legs are a little bowed from the rickets piece, but you know, there we are. And we got on this 5,000 ton Danish freighter called the Johannes Maersk. Some of you see uh, trucks going down the road or trains with Maersk contained. It's a huge Danish shipping line. This was not a huge Danish ship. This was 5,000 tons. That's a tub, okay? We had uh, seven passengers on board. You could have 12 on a freighter back in the day. If you had 13, you had to have a ship's doctor. We had seven passengers on board. My mom, my sis, me, and four other guys. And so we came out of the out from, let's say this is India over here, we came across the Indian Ocean, up the Suez Canal to the Mediterranean, out the Mediterranean between North Africa and Spain, the Rock of Gibraltar. I think we have a sketch of the ship going by the Rock of Gibraltar, and then across to Boston. It was almost five weeks on the open sea. You didn't go get on a jet, they didn't have jet liners, and be here in 24 hours. It was five weeks on the open sea, and I, uh, I'm, I'm one of seven passengers, I'm seven years old. I've spent my last three years in a British boarding school and this is gonna be the scary part. I sounded a little bit like Pastor Jeff. I would, I, I would say, please pass the water. Again, I, that's just how it was and it got wiped out but the Great West. But the um, four things stand, stand out in my memory from that. First of all, we left Colombo two weeks early to beat the seasonal monsoons, these tremendous rains and storms that come through. And that year they came two weeks early. So two days out in the Indian Ocean we got hit by, in the, in the Atlantic they'd call it a hurricane, in the North Pacific they'd call it a typhoon, in the Indian Ocean they call it a cyclone. Forty-foot waves, a 5,000-ton ship, we'd go up and slide off sideways. We'd go up and go prow down and tons of water would pour over the bow and hit the bulkhead and we're in this cabin right under the bridge and the ship would sort of right itself and shake itself like a, I don't know, a Jack Russell Terrier shaking off water. And I thought I was dead. At seven years old, I'm out. I thought we were, everybody was sick. The captain was sick, but we made it. Came up through the Suez Canal. I remember at seven because the sailors, you know, your seven-year-old kid in the 
guys are away from their families. And so the sailors would take me around and I'd, I explored everything from the engine room to the funnel. You can go up inside the funnel of a ship. They have ladders that go up inside there. And so I, would, I did that with them. And then I discovered two things. I discovered Danish pastries because you ate with the captain and it's a Danish ship and Coca-Cola. And I've had an almost 70-year love affair with both of those things. I'm just saying. <laughs> but the Coca-Cola, we didn't find out till two weeks out of Boston. And, and, and they said, we have these cases of Cokes. And they were just little nickel Cokes. And so they had enough to give each of the passengers one each morning and each afternoon. And I liked the taste so much that I would drink half of it, go fill it up with water and make it last longer. But the biggest thing I remember was that every day, except for the storm, every day, we played a board game. These seven people would play the game Monopoly. I'm seven. I won one time. I hate Monopoly. I'm just saying. No, I don't. I don't hate it. But Monopoly was a game that was invented back around 1900, 1903. Uh, there's an American woman by the name of Elizabeth Maggie who first invented it, and it was called the Landlord's Game originally. And she, and she really designed it as a poke in the eye to people who had monopolies back then, like John Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan. But in the 1930s, during the Depression, when people didn't have properties or when they'd lost them, this game by Parker Brothers then became popular. And the point of the game was to acquire land. You go around the board and land on stuff, and you can buy it. Acquire land, add homes or hotels, you can buy utilities, you can buy railroads, and then you manage it all. So if I have a railroad and you land on it, I charge you. It's very cool. And, and the point is to buy the other players out, to sort of bankrupt them so that you can have all the stuff and therefore have a monopoly. It's a game of chance, you roll the dice, but also a game of strategy. And there are some places where you can land on it and it says, don't go past go. Because if you go past go, you get 200 bucks. It says, go, go to jail, go directly to jail. Do not pass go, do not collect 200. But then they had some cards in the middle and if you rolled the dice right, you could get a card that said, get out of jail free. Everyone starts with $1,500 and you see where it goes. The idea behind the game was to acquire riches. That's the idea. And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk to you about riches and what that looks like. And it, this will be a reminder message. I'll make a point and you say, I knew that. Well, good. You're going to know it again. Because, you know, in sales, you have to say something 17 times before somebody buys. You do. So to be reminded of truth is something that stimulates the spirit. So, point one on the back of your bulletins is this. Our lives are spent acquiring. That's who we human beings are. We're acquirers. Our lives are spent acquiring. Some of the stuff we get is stuff. It's tangible. You know, a car, a chair, a couch, a whatever. House. Those are tangible things. Some are intangible, the things that we acquire. Sanzupari was an author who wrote a book called The Little Prince, and in there he said, what is essential is invisible to the eyes. What is essential is invisible 
to the eyes like knowledge or wisdom or experiences or ideas or friendship in terms of just the quality of friendship. Some things we earn, we acquire by earning, and some things we are given. So some things we purchase and some things we're given. In January of 2001, I was in Eastern Congo with a congressman. He was very involved with human rights issues and he wanted to go to the Eastern Congo. Now, Congo's a huge country in Africa. And lots of human rights things and just millions of people who are in poverty and all of that. And he wanted to go to Eastern Congo. And Eastern Congo was a very dangerous area. There were, there were seven other countries that had troops inside Congo at that time because they were looking for gold and tantalite that you make uh, computer chips from and all of that. And so there were just bands of thugs that would be ro roaming around. So we were with somebody from the State Department. We were in an open vehicle being guarded by 13-year-olds with AK-47s. I was slightly nervous. And, and we're going past these villages that are just devastated. And I turned to the congressman. I said, Frank, uh, do you ever have the thought, like I was born in Alameda, California, by, by San Francisco area. I said, do you ever have the thought, why was I born there and not here? You ever have that thought? He said, yeah, I have. I said, what do you think about that? He said, when I have that thought, this is what I think. I think what the gospel writer said when he said, to whom much is given, much is required. That's what I think about it. So some of the things that we acquire None of the things we acquire, I would say, do we need to do this with so much. What we need to do is this. Point two, but we are more, we as human beings are more than balance sheets. If you're a business person, you know what a balance sheet is. A balance sheet has your assets, that's the plus side, and the liabilities, that's the minus side. And what you want to do in business or in your home budget or whatever is to keep the pluses more than the minuses. If you get more minuses than pluses, then that's not good. And, uh, but, but we are more, as human beings, more than balance sheets comprised of assets and liabilities. We are more than data. We are more than land. We are more than buildings. We are more than machines. We can do all that. But we are much more complex. I love the... I love Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is a psalm of David. David was a shepherd, a king, a warrior, poet, songwriter. In Psalm 139, in verses 13, 14, says this, For you created my inmost being. He's talking to God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. This God who fearfully made us fearfully and wonderfully made us as people who acquire. That's part of our driving force, if you will. I mean, we, we have learned, we have acquired knowledge so much so that we can, we can harness water. We can harness fire. We can harness light and electricity and the sun 
and the wind, some better than others, but we can do that. I mean, every year we acquire more knowledge. I was talking just this week to a friend who's a retired um, Navy person, an admiral who's on the board of Raytheon, which is this big technical company in Boston. And in the course of the conversation, he said, Dick, you know, the research shows that in the last two years around the world, we have generated more new knowledge than, than in the entire history of mankind in the last two years. And it'll happen again this year and next year. I mean, it's just over, I can't get my head around that. But the idea, it, just every year we acquire more knowledge, like let's just as an example say outer space. It's vast, you know, you sit and you, you on, a, on a nice dark evening on a, when it cools down a bit and you're sitting out in your back and you look up and there's the Milky Way. Well, that, that's our galaxy, I understand. And the galaxy's big. Okay, and so I'm thinking how many of our solar systems, because we're, you know, we're in a solar system, how many of our solar systems are there in the Milky Way galaxy? And so I checked it out. Somewhere over 100 billion solar systems. And we didn't, David didn't know that when he said we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But because we're fearfully and wonderfully made and we can acquire knowledge, we know that. And there are millions of other galaxies. And we follow the God who spoke that into existence. That's what I believe. I'm saying, well, okay. That's good. That's his stuff. That's outer space. But now, also, as we do research, we're finding about, out about inner space. These two things are going on at the same time. So all the stuff that's in here, you know, the spleen and the liver and the pancreas and the heart and all that, all the muscles and the tissues and all of that, it's really something. If you, if you read about health at all, the big sort of thing today is talking about gut health. They say, you know, your gut's your other brain. This brain is larger than this one. This one's only three pounds, but this one. And, you know, I was talking to a research scientist and a, and a surgeon friend this week, and we were chatting about this, and, and researchers use the word because you have a lot of critters that live in here. You said, I thought that was just the pepperoni. No, no, there are a lot of critters in there. And it's, it's called um, microbiota. They are, they are microbes and bacteria that when you eat something, they chew it up and get it and move it around, do whatever. And the whole area is called a microbiome. It's like the home of the microbes. And there are gazillions of those in there. Apparently, it makes me just, that's yuck. I'm saying, whoa, <laughs> doesn't look like that, but it's stuff's going on. And, you, and, and don't come and ask me a question about it after. This is as much as I know. I'm just saying, okay? God made us to acquire. He made us to gain. He made us to add. He made us to multiply. He did not make us to negate and divide and subtract. He made us to be a plus, if you will. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the desire to acquire. Even tangible stuff. It isn't a either or, it's a both and, okay? But the question is, why do I want to acquire or what do I want to acquire? And why? Or to put it another way, does what I am acquiring just benefit me? Jesus had a thought about that. Luke 12, he tells this parable. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns 
and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich, there's that word, is not rich toward God. You say, why do I have to be rich toward God? He's rich, he's, he's the person, he's got it all. Why, why would, how do I get, how do I be rich toward God? You know, some, sometimes the stuff in our lives, in this case, bigger barns for this fella, the stuff gets in the way of the eternal part. So the temporal gets in the way of the eternal. The story told of two businessmen back in the mid-1800s in England. One was a believer, one was not. They loved each other, and the one who was a believer would go to his brother time and again and say, you need to think about God while you're doing business. You need to think that, you know, he gave you the capacity and all of that. And the other businessman just kept building his business, building mills. It was back in the Industrial Revolution, building mills. And it came to the time when he was dying because he would come, the brother would come and say, you need to think, of, and he'd say, you know, I just, I've got one more mill that I'm, that I'm building. Just as, as soon as I get that done, then we can talk. He's on his deathbed, he's half delirious. His brother comes to him, begging him to think about God. And, and the one who had built all the mills said, Jesus, over there saying something but I can't I can't hear for the sound of the mills don't let the stuff of your life get in the way of the of the intangibles that make your life rich because the greatest wealth point three the greatest wealth cannot be counted the thing that makes you the richest can't be counted. It doesn't go on a balance sheet, right? How about, how about those of you who are rich in love or trust or respect or admiration? I saw a piece recently on television about a fellow named Robert Moore. He just turned 80, lived in Ponca City, Oklahoma, and he was a choir master. He, he taught choral music to high schoolers at Ponca City High School from 1966 to 1996. You can Google this if you want and you can see the actual YouTube video. And um, he taught 900 students over those 30 years. And some of his students, I think maybe 150 of them, decided for his 80th birthday they were going to surprise him. And they came from all over the world to thank him for what he did. And he wasn't a glad-hander. He wasn't a at-a-boy, at-a-girl kind of guy. They said he was strict and he was a disciplinarian. And, he said, you know, you need to hit the note and you need to work at this. And if you got, one lady said, if you got a half smile from him, it made your whole month. I mean, it was just. He was that kind of guy. But he taught them the disciplines of life. He gave that to them. They acquired that. And he walks into this theater in downtown Ponca City and here are all these folks on the platform and they sing the songs he had taught them. 
Michael, row your boat ashore, or oh, happy day, whatever was the song, were the songs back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. They sang, and of course, he's in tears. And when he gets up to thank them, this is what he said at the end of his thanks. He said, I loved you then, and I love you now. God bless you. There are some, the intangibles of life are the things that make us rich. The other stuff goes up in smoke. That's how that works. Sometimes we're surprised where wealth is found. I love that passage in Matthew 5. It's the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus goes up and sits down and he, they come, the disciples come, and he talks to them. And it, the Sermon on the Mount starts with blesseds. We call them the Beatitudes. Blessed this and blessed that and so forth. And the first one is this. Blessed are the poor. Here we go. Blessed are the poor. Not the rich. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I have a lawyer friend in D.C. and we were talking about scripture and he, he hadn't read too much of Jesus and I said, why don't we do that? He said, well, where would we start? I said, well, why don't we start with the Sermon on the Mount here? And he said, okay. And I said, why don't you read those blesseds and we'll, then we'll get together. So we got together at my house and I said, so what did you think about those? And you can read them real easily, Matthew 5. And he said, um, you know, they, all of them kind of made sense except that first one is... Is a, is a non sequitur. That's a, a Latin phrase that means it doesn't fit. It doesn't feel like it fits. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, what does poor in spirit mean? I said, well, wh what does it mean to be poor? He said, well, it means you don't have any assets, or very few. I said, what do you think poor in spirit means? He said, that you recognize you don't have any spiritual assets? Like you don't have anything like to bring to the party? said, yeah. And Jesus says, the people who recognize, I, this is what I think it means, the people who realize they don't have anything eternal to bring to the party, I'll give them heaven. Why don't we do that? Why don't we go there? Why don't the poor in spirit really discover that they are rich beyond measure? You know, I've been many places in the world where I'll walk into a hut or a hovel where people are tangibly poor. And they will give you, they will cook for you the last thing they have in their cupboard. Some of you have been there. You know what I'm talking about. And I've sat with them, and boy, they need some tangible stuff. I mean, they can use some, and they're grateful if you, if you can get it for them. I help them get it. But I've sat with so many of them that just have spirits that are alive. They're just joyous, they, you know, because they can't count on the tangible. So maybe they press harder into the intangible. Maybe they go harder after the eternal because they can never be sure of the temporal. I don't know. But you're surprised where you find riches. Scriptures talk about riches. Paul talks about this in Ephesians when he's describing the grace of God. And I'll just read the first part, Ephesians 3. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So he links trust, faith, the spirit's work in us. He, he links it with the idea of being wealthy. That's what he does. We don't need our riches nearly as much as we need his, okay? We don't need our riches nearly as much as we need his because investments in eternal things 
keep gaining value. Investments in eternal things keep gaining value. You say, well, how do you invest in eternal things? Well, you've heard the old saw, you're designed to love people and use things, but if you're not careful, you end up using people and loving things, right? But the fact is that things don't last forever. They rust, they get stolen, they go up in smoke, whatever. But people do last forever. I was this young pastor, probably 35 years old at the time, and uh, a young man came to me. He was visiting from Michigan. He walked up after service and he said, uh, Pastor Dick, my name's Tim, and I just want to introduce you and introduce myself to you because I'm your grandson. I said, say what? He said, I'm your grandson. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, Bill, who was here getting a master's degree at the University of Illinois in electrical engineering, he came to Jesus here because he heard the good news about Jesus here. And so you introduced him to Jesus. And Bill met me some years later and introduced me to Jesus. So I'm your grandson. <laughs> People say God has no grandchildren. And I say baloney. <laughs> you do for sure. Especially the eternal kind. That's how that works. I, I was a college president. I went to ask a fellow for a million dollars. I'd never asked anybody for a million dollars. I wasn't asking for myself, but that's what college presidents do. They ask people for money so they can build stuff and do programs. And so I went to see John Stoll. He's 84 years old. He had been in the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco. He, he was just down the road from San Francisco. And he, he was a farmer. Just a, you, you could get fooled by him because he just wore bib overalls and he seemed like he was Huckleberry Finn, but he was, he was so smart. He was so wise. He, he was a tremendous businessman. And, and John and his wife, Gertha, owned 50 acres of pears in downtown what is now Sunnyvale, California, which is Silicon Valley. If you're going to have 50 acres of pears, own it in Silicon Valley. I'm just saying. <laughs> and so I went to ask him for a million dollars, and he turned around, and his, I prayed, God help me. And I go in there, and his first question to me was, how soon do you need that? And I about had the big one. I, you know, I, I, I know I prayed, but you know, so you've done that. You've prayed, but you don't really. Anyway, I did that. He gave us a million dollars. We built the Stoll Center, is part of that. And his granddaughter came on the day of the dedication, and she said to our students, she said, we're going to cut the ribbon and walk into the Stoll Center in just a few minutes. You need to understand two things. One is you need to understand that's not just any old building. That's my grandparents' life. And when you walk into that... It's their life. But the reason they give, have given money over the years to this university and college is that they know what you're about and you're going to take the message of Jesus around the world. And these were ministers and teachers and music people. And uh, they knew that, and, and he's, she said, my, my grandfather hates paying taxes to Uncle Sam. He just do anything. And so he could give a million dollars here and you would take this message around the world and it would multiply and he would get compound interest on his investment and wouldn't have to pay one red cent to Uncle Sam. So I'm just saying, you know, I think we'd like that. But the <clears throat> Let's come back to monopoly for a moment. Monopoly is about purchasing things of value. What does Jesus place the highest value on? Well, on you, on me. The value of an object <clears throat> is determined by the price someone is willing to pay for it. The value of an object is determined not by the seller, it's determined by the buyer, ultimately. 
If you've ever tried to sell a car, that's how it works. May not be that way in department stores, but that's how it works. You say, you know, you've been here 10 years, Nick, and we've heard you say that like 50 times. The value of an object is determined by the price someone's willing to pay for it. Why do you keep saying that? Because the value of an object is determined by the price somebody's willing to pay for it. And we need to understand that in terms of how we are seen by God. If Jesus was playing Monopoly, I don't think he'd land on Boardwalk and Park Place. I think he'd come around and land in your space, in my space. As a matter of fact, that's what he did. He landed in my space and he says, I'm going to purchase you. And, and that's how it is. I'm going to do it. When I said that last evening, a lady came up and just handed this to me and walked away. She just said, I think Jesus played Monopoly. He paid for all the get out of jail cards and freely gives them away. That's exactly right. That's how that works. So he did it. Ephesians 1 says it this way. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We have forgiveness in accordance with the riches of God's grace. That's the value he places on. This is like somebody walking up to your front door, ringing your doorbell and say, uh, Martha, you know that mortgage you have of $137,123? You know that? Do I know it? I Every month I just wanted you to know that's taken care of. Took care of the mortgage. If Martha doesn't faint, she says, why? What do you, well, because you're valuable. Because I want to bless you. Because I want you to be with me forever. So I took care of the debt. That's what I did. And more than that, I've put a million dollars in your bank account and there's more where that came from if you want it. Here is the God who comes along and out of the riches of his grace, he overwhelms us. To put it succinctly, this is how he said it in Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness in all these things will be added to you. When, you. when you seek the kingdom and he invites you in by forgiving sins and purchasing you, if you will, when he does that, the big thing you get is access. If you were to come with me to Washington, D.C., and we knew somebody in Washington, D.C., we don't have to have a big limo and fancy suits. All we need is to know someone in that office. Because someone is access. That's how that works. And he says, you can show up in the throne room anytime you want and ask me for whatever it is. And I'll give you wisdom. I'll give you peace. I'll give you, you come on because you now have access when you seek the kingdom of God. His part is done. Our part continues. Let's be all about getting, acquiring, and all about giving. That's how it, that's how it works. Let's do that. A full life is not about your riches or mine. It's about his. Annie Johnson Flint was born in 1866 in Vineland, New Jersey on Christmas Eve. By the time she was six, she had been orphaned. Both of her parents had died. Another family took her in. By the time she was in her teens, she had developed arthritis and soon after lost use of her legs. She was bedridden 
for years. She was covered with sores, bed sores, and other kinds of things. She lost control of most of her bodily functions. But people said she was cheerful and optimistic. And she started writing verses on little cards and letters and sending them to people. And one day she wrote these words as a piece of prose, a piece of poetry. Later they were put to music and made into a song. These are the words she wrote. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials his multiplied peace. And then the refrain is this. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundaries known unto men. But out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, or the day, or the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundaries known unto men, but out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. So, you wealthy people, you people overflowing with riches, take that. This is the God who, when you seek his kingdom, he says, let me show you this. And he pours himself onto us and into us and gives us friends and all of that when we follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these moments together. There may be some here, just in this moment, who say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm following Jesus. I'm in. But I have to tell you, I, I, I don't know that I knew I was that rich. I think maybe in my brain I've been living more toward the poverty side than the richest side. And I just, uh, this morning, as you close in prayer, Dick, I'd like you to just include me in your prayer that I would fully gain an understanding of his riches that I have. And you just slip a hand up and say, include me in your prayer when you close. You just slip your hand up and say, I want to I wanna know that better. I want to know his riches more. You just slip, yes, yes, yep, yes, I see you. There may be some here who say, you know, um, that part about the mortgage being paid, about me being forgiven, and I, I didn't ask. I mean, he, he forgave me already. I want to experience his forgiveness. I want to have the life you're talking about, but I, but I haven't ever done that. I haven't ever said I want to do that, but I'd like to say that this morning just by lifting a hand, and you'll slip up a hand and say, include me in your prayer at the end. You'll just slip it up and hold it up just for a moment. Yes, I see you. Yes. You just slip it up and hold it up so I can, yes, I see you. You can, you can put it down. Thank you. Father, you know us better than we know ourselves.
You know our hearts. You know our desires. You know our hurts and our history. Thank you that you overwhelm us with riches as we follow Jesus. Help us to acknowledge that and understand that and grow in that every day. Thank you for the privilege of being yours. And we stand on tiptoe to see what it is you want to do next. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.